I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. spread across the lands and seas like a virus, infecting everything with death and hatred. The monstrous empires of Europe and the East seemed unbeatable and destined to victory. To win, the Allies would need to try every trick in the book, use every method of war known to them, and at times even invent new methods. The more daring, the more dangerous. But in a fight that could mean the end of everything, There are no reserves, no plans too risky. Better to leave no stone unturned. Better to lose, if lose you must, having exhausted every possible and even impossible chance. The Allies in World War II knew this, and in the Pacific Theater, they tried every imaginable gambit. So, this week on Cauldron, let's go back to beautiful Bali and the perilous Lombok Strait. Let's go back to the hundreds of empty, featureless miles of the Java Sea, to the craggy bushland and winding river training grounds of Camp X on the Hawkesbury River. Let's go back to the crowded shipping lanes and jam-packed wharves of the jewel of the East, Singapore itself. Let's go back to a time when everything was on the line, freedom hung in the balance, and a few fearless men had the courage to gamble their lives in the hopes of striking the enemy a blow. Men that recognized the truth in Faulkner's line, quote, You cannot swim for new horizons until you have courage to lose sight of the shore. Let's get stuck in to Operation Jaywick, September 26, 1943. A small island nation with a burgeoning population and blossoming economy, Japan required almost everything it needed to run to be imported from away. This meant that if trade deals couldn't be struck, the Japanese had to be willing and able to take what they couldn't buy. And the Japanese government had no qualms about using military force to strip a neighbor of anything valuable. By 1940-41, the Japanese had been running roughshod all over mainland China for almost a decade. Japan's hunger for raw materials was insatiable. As the world became more and more aware of this budding, aggressive empire in the east, the western powers tried to stabilize the region. By restricting access to critical resources like oil and rubber, the United States and Great Britain could put the brakes on Japanese expansion or so they hoped. Japan was unable to cope with the economic pressure and sanctions from the West. The Japanese government began to scramble for ways to maintain their power position 
while negotiating away free of the imposed restraints. Quickly, though, it became clear that any talks with the U.S. would likely prove fruitless. The Imperial Japanese military recognized that the fuel and materials that they did have would soon be used up just by maintaining a war footing. There would soon come a day that even if Japan wanted to fight a war, they would be unable to do so out of a simple lack of means. Of course, the riches of the Far East lay all around Japan, ripe for the taking, and the temptation proved too much. All that was required was a way to knock down Great Britain and the U.S. quickly, and if not permanently, then for a good long count. The plan was bold, brilliant, dastardly, and infamous. The Imperial Japanese war machine was set upon the world in full on December 7, 1941. The attacks on Pearl Harbor, that pristine Hawaiian Sunday morning, were highly successful, if not necessarily devastating. And the reason that they weren't devastating is that uh, Admiral Yamamoto had designed the entire attack, attack to take out the Pacific aircraft carriers of the U.S. Navy. But those, uh, those aircraft carriers weren't in the harbor at the time of the attack they were out to sea. So they remained safe and kind of torpedoed, uh, excuse the pun, Yamamoto's whole plan. Anyhow, the U.S. Navy in the Pacific was uh, extremely damaged. It was hamstrung before it even knew it was in a fight. In a stunning display of coordination and operational capability, the following hours and days saw a flurry of Japanese attacks. Across the Pacific, from Malaya to the Moluccas, the Philippines to the Aleutians, the Japanese military lashed out. The freshly minted Allied powers, Great Britain and the U.S., were utterly shocked and sent reeling by a flurry of Japanese attacks. As the scale of the Imperial Japanese offensive became apparent, the Allies scrambled to cauterize the various wounds. The British believed one of the places that would help halt the onslaught was the Gibraltar of the East, the metropolis city of Singapore. Dangling at the tip of the Malaya Peninsula, Singapore was considered impregnable as a fortress, a nut too tough to be cracked. Tokyo hoped to take the city and thereby control the area's shipping lanes, giving free reign in the Dutch East Indies, an area that was rich in all the resources Japan craved. In a series of startling moves, the Japanese advanced down the Malaya Peninsula and soon were knocking at the gates of the city. What followed was, according to Churchill, the, quote, worst disaster in British military history, end quote. The British commander of the city, Arthur Percival, surrendered the city with its 80,000-man garrison to an army of around only 35,000 Japanese. Now, we'll cover this story further at some point in the future, but for today's tale, Singapore has fallen and the Japanese have landed another blow to the Allied cause. In the mayhem of a falling city, thousands of British, Australians, New Zealanders, and Europeans fled. Among the refugees was a man named Captain Ivan Lyon. A man of great imagination and a fierce will to fight, Ivan Lyon was going to play a key role in the Operation Jaywick story. Along with civilian Australian Bill Reynolds, Lyon began plotting how best to hit back at the invaders almost immediately after he left the city. 
Lyon recognized that the Japanese strategy would be to use Singapore to supply advances through Burma and eventually to use the city as a launching pad for operations aimed at Australia. He believed that as Japanese interior lines stretched further and further, striking logistical aspects of the Japanese military would prove just as useful as traditional combat, maybe even more so. As the German Blitzkrieg swept through Western Europe, Churchill realized his small island nation could do little to hurt the enemy at first. But they had to do something to remind the enemy they weren't invincible. So Churchill called for an organization to, quote, to set all Europe ablaze, end quote. The special operations groups that soon formed were to specialize in asymmetric warfare. Traditionally thought of as a, quote, weak strategy, asymmetric warfare is a kind of strategic martial arts. It uses a larger opponent's size against itself. Through guerrilla tactics like sabotage, assassination, and partisan attacks, a smaller force can compensate for an adversary's more substantial conventional strength. The risks, of course, are incredibly high for the individuals involved but the potential strategic gains are just as high compared to the extremely low cost in life and material. Today, we see asymmetric warfare used to significant effect by insurgents and terrorist groups all over the globe. Most governments even have agencies that specialize in asymmetric warfare. Um, in this particular case, think of uh, any special forces units or agencies like the CIA, uh, MI6, the KGB, the SVR. Uh, these are all various units that will employ either multiple forms or uh, one or two. Or you know, they, they specialize in warfare that's not just putting infantry and tanks on the board and seeing what happens. The reason that asymmetric warfare is so widely used is that it, it, it works. And there are a uh, few examples of running high-reward, low-risk, asymmetric operations as successfully as in 1943 with Operation JWIC. The SOA, or Special Operations Australia, was the organization set up to start waging a covert war in the Pacific Theater of Operations and light the Japanese Empire ablaze. It was made of a mix of Australians, British, as well as several other nationalities. Everyone involved was fully intent on bringing the war to the enemy. The SOA established a commando raider unit in June of 1942 known as Z Special Unit. By late 1942, the war had begun to turn. The Battle of Midway dealt a death blow to the Imperial Japanese Navy. It would take months before this was apparent, but the injury to Japan was a mortal one. Over time, the Allies began to scrape and claw their way towards Tokyo, island by bloody island. As the red ring of Imperial Japanese control shrank, SOA's asymmetric warfare played a large part in creating chaos and confusion behind enemy lines. SOA's Z Special Unit would play arguably the key role in stirring the Japanese pot. Ivan Lyon and Bill Reynolds hatched the plan to hit Singapore Harbor in the early months after the city's fall. 
As refugees themselves, as I mentioned earlier, they recognized how easy it might be for a small group of men to get in and out of the harbor unnoticed. The plan was kicked around and eventually made its way to Archibald Wavell, CIC in India. He was optimistic about the idea, but had one small critique that proved hugely valuable. Wavell said the plan could move forward, but any infiltration had to come from the south and east, not from the west. His reasoning was simple, but showed a deep understanding of his enemy. Wavell reasoned that the Japanese would expect attacks from the perimeter of their lines of control, but they would be completely confident in their total control behind the front lines. If the infiltrators could sneak through the thousands of little islands and waterways from the southeast, they might catch the defender unawares. That small shift in the plan made the task of reaching the target infinitely more difficult. Lyon and his team had to get to Singapore. For that, they would need a vessel, durable and sturdy enough to make the trip, but innocuous enough to go unnoticed. Unnoticed, not for a minute or a short while, over hundreds and hundreds of miles and for days on end in enemy-controlled territory. That very ship was already at hand in the Kofuku Maru, clocking in at 70 feet long, 11 feet in the beam, and pulling a measly 5-foot draft, the Kofuku Maru was ideal. With a vast 7 to 8,000 mile range, the vessel was suitable for tooling around the geography of the East Indies. Initially a Japanese fishing boat, the Kofuku Maru would fit right in with the local fishing fleets and the natives. The Kofuku Maru had already proved it could handle the maze-like seas and islands of the area as well. After Singapore fell, she had been used to rescue over 1,000 refugees and bring them back to safety. The only thing that the Kofuku Maru lacked was a name fit for a warship. That changed when she was rechristened the MV Crate, the Mighty Crate. The name Crate had a dual meaning. The first meaning was meant to strike fear into the enemy's heart, and the second one was a joke had by the men who lived on board. The first, Crate, is a fierce, poisonous, deadly little snake. The second, Crate, is a knock on the boxy, small boat's look. Neither spacious or particularly elegant looking, the men that shipped on the Crate grew to love their ugly little duckling. But at first, it was not uh, exactly what they were expecting. Former member Horace Young recalls seeing the vessel for the first time, quote, I thought it was the most dreadful thing I'd seen in my life. Even my trawler days, when I think of them, I thought they were bad enough, but nothing could equal Crate, I'm sure, end quote. Lyon didn't care, though. He didn't care how Crate looked or how small it was, all he wanted it to do was get him and his team to Singapore to hit the enemy. But first, he had to assemble his team. From Flinders Naval Depot, Lyon selected several men and began to whittle them down. Through a rigorous process of elimination, he eventually narrowed it down to 11 Australians and three Brits, including himself. These last men standing began intense training 
on August 15, 1943, in the Hawkesbury River area of New South Wales. The region was full of dense bush, inlets, bays, and cliffs. Perfect conditions for clandestine training, providing plenty of -of out-of-the-way places to practice the commando arts and to train with their new equipment. And train they did. From sunup to 10 p.m. and very often in between, the young men were on day-long runs, night-long marches, and almost continuously rowing somewhere. Hour by hour, the men trained with the Sten, the Owen, and the Lewis guns. They trained with limpet mines, fold boats, and other weapons of war. And the fold boats are really cool. They were invented, I believe, or designed by a Swiss, uh, a Swiss inventor, and they are basically just collapsible canoes. They play a huge role in the entire Jaywick, uh, in the entire Jaywick raid, as do the limpet mines. Those are going to be the mines that the raiders actually put onto the ships in Singapore Harbor. Um, so anyhow, every day brought on some kind of new tasks designed to test endurance, ability, and commitment. The strain of the whole experience worked to mold a unit of brothers, men that could think as one. It was actually incredibly tough going, but it was in an essential part of the whole process as it ends up turning these young men into the eventual warriors that they became. As a group, the so-called jock force was a mishmash of random strangers. In time, though, they became closer than family, and each individual would bring his own unique attribute to the crate. Lyon had chosen well with his SIC, Lieutenant Davidson. Davidson was a hard-ass jackaroo known to the team as a true, quote, man's man. He was a brilliant judge of character and played an instrumental role in building and training the team. His specialty lay in the dealing of death. His diary talks about a man's weak spots, quote, Temple, good hard blow will kill. Eyes, gouge out in fighting. Jab with two fingers in a sudden movement. Finish off at leisure. Ears, pull off, bite off. Exert pressure upwards with both thumbs under the bottom of ears. Adam's apple, punch as Japanese do with second or long finger knuckled and protruding. Hands, tear fingers apart and split hands bend fingers back, and break, end quote. The second-in-command of Jock Force was clearly a very serious man and not somebody that I would choose to, uh, choose to pick a fight with. Lieutenant Kars was the skipper of the ship who replaced the older Bill Reynolds. Kars doubled as the navigator as well. The crate's medic was Lieutenant Page, a medical student with a gen- gentle, sensitive nature. Corporal Crilly was an army engineer of Scottish roots. He came on as the cook, but had little culinary ability. Lyon just wanted more engineers on board. The one thing Crilly knew how to make, though, were pancakes, hence his nickname, Pancake Andy. The many pancakes served on board the crate during the mission led most of the Jaywick men that survived World War II to never want to see another pancake in their life. Corporal Morris was a Welshman with a booming voice and a happy disposition. Known as Taffy, he was also a trained medic. In the leading stoker role was McDowell, a veteran Irish engineer. Leading seaman Kane was an experienced sailor known as Cobber. A big, powerful man, Cobber was made coxswain for the mission. Leading telegraphist H. Young was a smart, quick-minded young man. 
He had built his first working radio at 11 and joined the Navy at 16. Abel Seaman Falls was a dairy farmer in New South Wales and the oldest of the recruits at a whopping 23. His age earned him the nickname Papa. Abel Seaman Jones was known as Joe and was a Perth man. Joe was a very reliable helmsman and one of the team's more experienced seamen. Abel Seaman Houston was known as happy to the others, and he rarely smiled. He was diligent and hardworking from Brisbane and always trying to do the job well. Abel Seaman Marsh was the team joker. Quick with a laugh or a gag, he was known as Boof, and he was taken lightly at one's own risk as he was an expert in unarmed hand-to-hand combat. Abel Seaman Berryman rounded out jock force, quiet and subdued, He had been a shop assistant in Adelaide before the war. Underneath the sheepish facade, though, Davidson believed there was a leader. Lieutenant Davidson wrote in his diary that all Berryman needed to excel was a push. The team was assembled, the men were trained, the crate was as ready as she'd ever be. All that was left was to set sail. At 1400, on September 2, 1943, the crate did just that. Leaving Potshot Base in Western Australia, the crate headed for Rio Archipelago. In the early go, the crew got their first chance to see how the crate handled in rough seas. Choppy waters affected the crate more than usual because, for this mission, she was overpacked with men and material. All that weight meant that the little boat was sluggish when righting herself, and she rolled slow and deep. Even after the sea settled the next morning, there had to be a sense of foreboding running through the crate. The mission had only just begun, and there seemed to be trouble already. The first real test of the disguise, the whole plan's most vital aspect, came on September 8th. Heading through the Lombok Strait would require the crate and her men to sail between Lombok and the Bali Islands. It was believed the waters were bound to be patrolled by both Japanese vessels and air reconnaissance. At the very least, there would be local fishing boats and likely tankers passing by, all of which would pose the threat of discovery. Initially, the plan was to slip through the straits at night under the cover of haze. As the crate got closer, though, Lyon and his men realized there was no haze protection whatsoever. There was no point in delaying, so the decision was made to go for it, and in sight of any potential viewers, the crate continued. Passing some uninhabited islands, and in view of a few fishing vessels, the crate shot through, eventually getting some cover from the seasonal haze that developed. As they passed the Bali shore, they saw no activity and no trace of any sails. Steaming out of the strait into the Java Sea, the crate had passed her first test and now headed towards the Kanagan Islands. The Java Sea passage proved steady and slow with little activity. The crate passed several islands and spotted some far-off sails, but nothing that raised any alarms. Even when they did pass a large tanker, the men felt reasonably safe as the other ship gave no sign of noticing the little crate. Their disguise, it seemed, was working. 
Some of the men had even dyed their skin to an orange-brown, and all of them wore native dress. The destination after the Strait and the Java Sea was Pompong Island, an uninhabited little island that had water on it and was out of the way, far enough out of the way to go uninvestigated. For all these reasons, Jaywick planners decided Pompong would work well as a base of operations. The overall plan was to hit Singapore in a way that called for three canoes to paddle their way from a drop area well outside of Singapore, and then they would row right into the harbor, plant limpet mines, or time charges, on the sides of tankers. Then they were to paddle back to Pompong, get picked up, and then the crate would head for home. All the while, Japanese shipping in the harbor would be burning and sinking. Pompong Island might have worked on paper, but the men realized quickly that it wouldn't work in practice. A lack of other options nearby forced Lyon's hand. He decided to move forward with the operation. But now, instead of the crate hanging around Pompong, she would steam about in, in isolated waters, being careful never to linger or to go to the same place twice. The fear wasn't so much that the Japanese patrols would find the crate, but it was more of local gossip about the weirdly dressed and colored men on board a Japanese fishing boat. After being on Pompong for a short while, the crew realized the area was heavily patrolled. The decision was made to head north in a roundabout way to the island of Panjang. At 0500 on the 18th, men, food, and gear were offloaded. The crate hauled anchor and headed for Borneo with the plan to meet up with the team on Pompong Island on October 1st or 2nd. The Jaywick Raiders set up camp while the rest of the group and the crate sailed off. The men dragged the stores and equipment into the jungle and went about scouting the area. Because they had reached the ops base a day ahead of schedule, the men rested on September 18th and 19th in preparation for the grueling trip to come. On the evening of the 20th, the men set out with fully loaded canoes. Given the weight of men, gear, and a week's load of food, the little collapsible canoes, or full boats, sat low in the water and reacted very slowly. In the first canoe and navigating was Lieutenant Davidson and Papa Falls. Followed by him in the second canoe was Captain Lyon and Happy Houston. And bringing up the rear canoe, or the third canoe, was Paige and Joe Jones. On that first night, the team stopped after rowing about 10 miles and set up camp for the rest of the night and the following day. Again, at dusk on the 21st, the canoe slipped into the water, this time heading up the Bulan Strait. That night, the men seemed extra edgy, and due to this, they alerted to danger where there was none. The constant need to stop made for slow going, and the decision was made to halt and camp for after going only 12 miles. The camp that night was set up in a swamp infested by sand flies. The nearby village and passing ships meant that the men had to hunker down in the fly-ridden swamp all the following day. September 22nd ended with the men making significant progress. They reached the end of the strait. They now headed for the island of Palau Dongas, which would be the forward ops headquarter, arriving at it around midnight. Palau Dongas had water, was thickly jungled and swampy, and it was uninhabited. 
which all made for a perfect hidden headquarters. Best of all, Dongas was a mere eight miles southwest of Singapore Harbor. On the 23rd, the men set up an observation post that was capable, with the right conditions, of seeing into Singapore or into Keppel Harbor. As the men watched the target, it was realized just how effective this mission could be. The Japanese, as Wavell predicted, were supremely confident in their control over the rear area. Singapore instituted no blackouts at night. Lights and cars and other vehicles could be clearly observed. The enemy had no idea anything was amiss. On the 24th, a continuous watch was set on the harbor. During the entire time of observation, it became clear that the target was a fat one. Huge tankers flowed in and out of the port, ensuring that at no time was there less than 100,000 tons of shipping in the area. All the small local craft in and out of the harbor showed where the minefields lay, making the approach quicker and easier. That night, a target appeared, and Lyon thought it was too good to pass. The canoes tried for hours to reach their goal, but powerful tides pushed them back, and at 0100 they turned around. Two canoes made it back to Dongas and camp, but the same powerful current that had turned the whole group back sent Lyon's canoe way off the mark. The two men in that canoe reached cover as the sun rose and were forced to take shelter in a swampy little island all through the day. At sunset, Lion and Happy quickly rode back to base camp at Dongas. The swift current, unpredictable weather, and most importantly, unfavorable tides weren't going to change anytime soon. Realizing the whole mission could slip away due to these unforeseen circumstances, Lieutenant Davidson made a spot decision that would save the operation. He planned to relocate the headquarters and observation post as soon as possible to some new location from where the attack could more likely move forward. On the night of the 25th, the whole unit moved to Palau Subar, another small uninhabited island. This one, though, had no water, but it still had a great view of the anchorage and the target waterways. On the 26th, the men spent the day divvying up targets. The one canoe with Lion in it would hit Examination Anchorage. The two canoe with Davidson would hit Keppel Harbor and the roads, and the three canoe with Page would target Palau Bukum Wharf. If anyone should fail, they also had a list of secondary targets ready to go. At 1900, the canoes were on the water gliding towards their targets. At a designated spot, the canoes split up, and now all three canoes were heading towards the enemy position, alone. Lion and Happy reached their target zone at 2200. All the ships were blacked out except for a few tankers. Because of the blackout, the ships were virtually invisible to Lion. As the men in the canoes tried to find a suitable target, they realized the allotted time limit was almost up. Not wanting the mission to be a total bust, Lion decided to hit the tankers, easily visible due to their colored riding lights. Making their way around the hull, Lion and Houston attached limpet mines to the engine room and the propeller shaft. Things almost took a crazy turn, though, as Houston realized they were being watched by a man inside the ship only a few feet away. 
The man's face disappeared, and the light in his room came on, and for a few breathless minutes, Lyon and Houston waited to hear the alarm. None came, and the two men slipped back into the inky night and made it to Dongus before sunup. Page and Jones, in the three-canoe, made it to Palau Buckham Wharves at 2200 as well. Moving along silently, Page assessed the viable ships at anchor. There was one old freighter of the Tone Maru class that they attached limpets to the stern of, and the other ships were either too big or too small to hit. Skillfully avoiding the sentry on the pier and skirting the pools of light, Page and Jones picked out a couple of other ships to mine. In Keppel Harbor, the men found a newer freighter, the Nason Maru, which they succeeded in placing limpets on as well. The final target was an older ship, the Yamataga Maru, or maybe, possibly, the Nagano Maru. There's some confusion there. With all three ships wired with charges and ready to blow, Page and Jones paddled out of the harbor and made their way back to Dongus with no issues. Davidson and Falls and the two canoe made it to their zone at 2100. Having passed by anti-submarine mines and gotten by an anti-submarine boom, the men were almost run down and sunk by a tug just going about its daily business. They avoided possible death and remained undetected, but were disappointed upon reaching their first target zone. There just wasn't anything worth hitting there, and the targets seemed to be pretty weak. What there was, though, was either dangerously lit up or too small to warrant the risk of exposure. So the two men turned around and backtracked to the Rhodes area. Here their luck changed. The Rhodes was chock full of targets. They singled out three of the biggest they could get to, and uh, they had to get to them from the port side. This way they avoided the bright lights of the city and possible exposure. All three ships were in the five to to 6,000 tonnage range, types of uh, different types of Japanese transport. Each target was cased and the mines were placed. The two men of Canoe 2 left the roads area at 0100 and headed for safety. The difference, though, is they weren't going to Dongus like the other two canoes, but instead the uh, two canoe with Davidson was heading, uh, setting a course straight back to the pickup zone at Pompong. The ensuing trip of four days was a slog as the two men made frequent stops to rest and to hide. But other than a storm that almost sank them towards the end of their journey, the two men of two canoe made it to the rendezvous without issue. Canoes one and three, with Lion and Page, stayed at Dongus long enough to witness the results of their hard work. The limpet mines were all set with time charges, and between 0500 and 0600 on the morning of the 27th, they went off. Seven explosions ripped through the previously quiet early morning harbor air. Debris and hunks of metal flew through the sky and smoke billowed from the hulking ships. Sirens screamed throughout the area, and the city of Singapore went black, anticipating a more extensive attack. The ports were locked down, and small ships crazily went back and forth with no seeming destination. Chaos surrounded the port, and the Japanese had no clue what was happening. Air patrols droned through the skies, trying to find the ships or planes that could have done such damage. 
It was clear to the Jaywick men that they had succeeded. One ship they could see was stern down, sunk. The smoke that cascaded from one of the burning tankers made any other visual confirmation impossible, but they had seen enough. The one and three canoes slipped into the water at sunset and set out for Pompong. The two canoes made their way along, but on the 30th, a brewing storm left the men beached. This meant the next day would have to be a daylight run of almost 30 miles to make up the lost ground. Incredibly dangerous, but necessary. Setting out on the morning of the 1st, the one and three canoes slid right under numerous aircraft and passed a Japanese observation point. They went wholly unmolested and unnoticed. Finally, at three in the morning, they reached Pompong and the pickup spot. The crate, though, was supposed to be there to pick them up on either the 1st or 2nd of October, but as the men exhaustedly rowed around the island, they saw nothing. Bone-tired and somewhat disheartened, they dragged their kit up on the beach and they slept. At dawn, they woke to see the crate only a couple of miles off. In their fatigue, the men had rowed past the anchored ship several times, never even noticing her. The crate sailed away, probably assuming something had held the men up. Lion, always ready, went into instant action, preparing his small band of men for an extended stay. They began to build a cabin, made contacts with the locals, even concocted a plan to steal a local ship and sail for India. Of course, none of this proved needed, as the next day, the crate chugged back into view. At 2200 on October 3rd, the last raiders of Singapore Harbor boarded and set sail for home for Australia. The return voyage was dull and uneventful compared to the intense last couple of weeks that the men had just lived. The only danger came in the previous leg as Crate entered the Lombok Strait, a Japanese patrol boat was sighted nearby. A tense hour passed, but the ship never challenged Crate and the two boats just sailed right past each other. On October 19, 1943, at dawn, the men of Jaywick and their ugly little ship Crate reached safety in the Exmouth Gulf. Forty-eight total days from start to finish, and not a single casualty or significant loss. Over 4,000 nautical miles covered without being recognized or reported once by the enemy. The Japanese suffered one vessel of 3,100 tons sunk, one Nason Maru, one 3,800 to 4,000 ton Ton Maru, one Taishio Maru of 4,800 tons, and two unidentified freighters of between five and 6,000 tonnage, all were either sunk or heavily damaged. The largest ship, a Shinkoku Maru of 10,000 tons, was damaged and on fire for an extended period of time. That's a whopping 37,000 to 40,000 tons of enemy material affected by six men in collapsible canoes. Incredible results for the SOA and the men of the special unit.
many of the JWIC team went on to continue fighting in the SOA and the war in general. Lyon would try to repeat the stunning success of JWIC only to die in the process. Operation Ramau, JWIC's would-be successor, was an unmitigated disaster that resulted in the deaths of its entire team, including the fearless Ivan Lyon. This is a story for the Patreon producers, and I'll get to it sometime this spring, so hang in there. As for the rest of the men of JWIC, many survived the war but never left it. Pancake Andy went on and became a loving husband and father, but he was a haunted man. In and out of recuperation homes, he struggled with what is now called PTSD, and to the day he died, it was a constant battle. His story is just one of many, but it highlights how even the happy and normal men that returned struggled to get on. The Jaywick men rarely talked amongst each other about what they had done during the war, and they never talked about it publicly. There was a protective aspect to this silence. You never wanted to put someone in danger by talking. But as the years passed and the mission became more and more well-known and became a point of pride for all Australians, some of them began to open up. They were honored both as a group and as individuals. Eventually, even ugly little Crate was given her due. She had continued to carry commandos throughout the war's end and was used even after the war for light duty. Then she was sold out of the service and played, uh, applied her trade off the waters of Borneo. She eventually made her way home, and on Anzac Day 1964, Crate was officially designated a war memorial. In 1985, she was bought by the Australian War Memorial and housed at the Australian National Maritime Museum for public view. Since 2017, the crate has undergone extensive preservation and rehabilitation work to ensure that generations to come will be able to view her and experience her vaunted history. As for the Japanese, the raid stunned them. The idea that such an attack could have been carried out from Australia never crossed the Singapore authorities' minds. The SOA never took credit for JWIC. The hope was to maintain the crate's anonymity for future operations. If the Japanese were looking everywhere but Australia as the source of the attack, then they were blinded by distraction and ripe for further attacks. And the Japanese were not only distracted, but utterly baffled. The belief was that such a dirty trick had to have been played by local saboteurs, most likely the hated communist Chinese. A total crackdown of the city was carried out by the Kempitai. Something like the Gestapo, the Kempitai was a terrible, murderous military police force. They scoured Singapore for suspects, arresting, torturing, and executing people with no evidence and or explanation. Chinese, Malayans, European civilians, and even imprisoned POWs were all subject to the harshest questioning and torture. One victim, Elizabeth Choi, was arrested and interrogated. She was, in fact, actually a member of the local resistance, funneling money and supplies to the underground, but she knew nothing of Jaywick because, again, the SOA had not taken credit for the attack. A small woman in peacetime, she was a teacher and a counselor. Choi suffered immensely at the hands of the Kempitai. 
Stripped and beaten regularly, Choi was humiliated and repeatedly dehumanized by her captors. She would survive and eventually was given the order of the OBE and was invited to be on hand for the Japanese surrender of Singapore in 1945. Her harrowing tale was one of many of for the entire post-Jaywick affair known as the Double Tenth event. The reason it's called the Double Tenth is because it happened on October 10th. After the war, many of the leading Japanese perpetrators of the Double Tenth terror were tried and convicted of war crimes, and most received prison sentences, but some were hanged for their misdeeds. So, was Operation Jaywick worth it? This question has been raised more and more over the years. I think the question exposes the luxury that time gives later generations. Time creates a sense of distance, false as that distance may be. 75, 76, 77 years ago is not actually that long in the grand scheme. The other luxury that we have when asking questions of this nature, outside of just a distance buffer, is circumstance. It's fairly easy to ask whether operations like Jaywick or Ramau or others are worth it when your existence is not on the line. It's impossible to put ourselves in the shoes of the men and women that had to make the game-time decisions in a global conflict that threatened to engulf the world as they knew it. For Americans, it's even easier to question. We've always had oceans between us and them, whoever the them might be. To be an Australian in 1941, 42, 43, even in 1944, would have been heart-poundingly suspenseful. The Japanese were only a boat ride away from families, friends, homes. The threat was real and ever-present, so feeling like striking back in any way possible seems only natural to me. Even if failure meant exposure and likely death or imprisonment for the individuals, uh, you take those risks. And even if you succeed and can't tell anyone, you, uh, you hit back at the enemy, at the bad guys, you still take those risks. Because it's a matter of taking action as opposed to inaction. Keep the enemy off balance, always guessing, uncomfortable, and hitting them where they feel most secure. These are some of the oldest, most pure, and fundamental tenets of war, and any general or leader would be foolish not to abide by them. Now, the, the time and distance might make certain questions disingenuous, but it does not mean we can't recognize consequence and reality. The Jaywick raid was the direct cause of the Double Tenth crackdown and the ensuing misery of the people of Singapore. That just is facts. So you can't deny that. And it shouldn't be denied. There are heroes that emerge from that situation every bit as brave and strong as the men of Z Special Unit. The suffering of the city was probably factored into the Jaywick planning, and it was deemed a necessary risk. It was probably even figured in the most terrible but honestly pragmatic sense to be a good diversion and cover for future operations. Jaywick was both the right call and had some terrible repercussions. These truths can live in the same universe. And look, Jaywick didn't disrupt Japanese shipping or supply in a crippling fashion. It likely didn't speed up the end of the war by a month or a week. It probably didn't even speed up the war's end by a day or an hour. But maybe it did by a minute. 
And when you're fighting the likes of a Hitler or a Tojo, every minute, every second matters. All right, that is Operation Jaywick. Stay tuned for the next episode preview at the end. But first, thank you all for listening, for waiting through the doldrums of January while I took a break from social media and from the podcast. Um, We just needed to, or I needed to kind of schedule out 2020 so that I can be more consistent with content. Um, But anyhow, that's passed and we've got a great season ahead of you. Um, So stay tuned and subscribe, do all that nonsense. This episode was inspired and driven along by a good friend down in Australia, and it's with him and his family in mind that I ask you to remember that the Australian brush fires happened. Uh, Here in America, we move quickly and we forget very, very easily uh, what's going on outside of our own little cell phone. So help if you can. It's out of the news now in the U.S. and people have moved on, but there is still much to be done and help that is needed. Do so if you can. The episode sources this week are in the show notes and the book reviews will be up on the Patreon. Um, So check that out. Check out the Instagram. The live stream that we'll be doing weekly in 2020 is every Wednesday night at 8 o'clock. We'll be talking theory, movies, TV, and books all related to military history or pretty much whatever you guys want to talk about. I'm just there to hang and, and get to know you guys. Uh, Check out the Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for images, maps, polls, quizzes, all that good stuff. Just search Cauldron Podcast. Go to the Patreon for some cool extra content, swag, and early release content. Uh, Rate, review, subscribe if you can, and if you haven't already. I truly, truly appreciate it, and it does help the show. Finally, next up on Cauldron... We have river battles with gunboats, Billy Yank and Johnny Reb coming to grips in our first American Civil War episode, and early stages U.S. Grant demanding unconditional surrender under the threat of annihilation. Next on Cauldron, we get stuck in at the Battle of Fort Donelson. <laughs>